0: Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR.
1: I can say I'm an issues and crisis guy, or I'm a corporate <laughs> reputation guy, but I stood back and said, "What does that translate right. into in business terms?" And I realised that you know organisations don't really exist; they're simply an amalgam of human beings, and that if you want the organisation to be resilient, which we all do then you have to start with the human factor and human preparedness. So, so much of what I do continues to be around training and coaching and simulation and preparedness and auditing, but the end goal is that notion of helping human beings to be prepared and confident so that their organization is more resilient. So, it's that combination of system, process and infrastructure but also human confidence and human preparedness. So again, it's it's interesting this thing of what is the end point, the end product of what you do as opposed to the output.
2: Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West, to cover another timely topic as we continue our collective trudge <laughs> through the midway point of 2020, the year to not remember.
0: Exactly. Hey there, Kelly. And yes, the trudge is real, I'd say, um, as we bear witness every day. Certainly hear from our listeners. As well. 2020 is, as I think Queen Elizabeth once famously said, our Annus Horribilis, Latin for horrible, <laughs>
2: horrible year. But, you know, there you go. And I was so optimistic at the beginning of this year. But as we were. It, we, we were. We really were. But just like any slow moving crisis or extended hardship, we have to develop new ways and new dialogues for managing through these challenges. And our topic today is learning, leading, and coping. During complex times, we were just joking around. I was saying, I don't know, I, I might be learning and coping. I don't know how well I'm leading, but <laughs> the PR industry has been on the forefront of helping our clients and organizations throughout 2020, and we're going to hear from an expert today about his observations and experiences of serving our industry in the trenches and on the front lines it's been a hard year
0: yeah and he is a remarkable and generous leader at that as i've seen firsthand our guest today is rod cartwright and he is a london-based colleague and leader of rod cartwright consulting a strategic communication consultancy which works with agencies as well as with in-house teams to deliver personal communication preparedness
2: and organizational resilience resilience i want to hear more about that yeah. <laughs> Why? because yeah. it's such it's a perfect word for our current times so mary beth we've had numerous guests since season one of misinterpreted through connections we've made in the prca yeah which is the public relations and communications association which is based in the uk and right. of course fletcher pr is an agency member How did you and Rod meet?
0: Yeah, well, like Rod, we are connected through the PRCA, where Rod has had a longtime leadership affiliation there, and I think he'll he'll tell us about that here in a moment. But Rod is currently deputy chair of the PRCA's Global COVID-19 Task Force. So in addition to following Rod on social media, just by virtue of the terrific content that he puts out there and just really on-point comments that he makes about things that are going on in the industry. I've had the privilege of serving with him on that task force, the COVID-19 task force. So I've seen firsthand the kind of insight he brings to his work. And I know our listeners today, of course, will really gain a lot from hearing from him.
2: Well, and Rod, I was looking over your bio and really impressed with your 25-year PR career with such market leaders as Ketchum, where you were Global Corporate Practice Director, Tex 100, Hill & Knowlton Strategies, and GCI. That's Quite yeah. uh, a impressive CV. Yeah, and he's worked with some of the largest global brands. Um, Rod's
0: consultancy focus is diverse. It really runs the gamut from areas like issues management and crisis communication, leadership communication, executive preparedness, thought leadership, corporate reputation, all of those types of things, all of which dovetail, I think, perfectly into our topic today. As you said, Kelly, learning, leading, coping during complex
2: times, because that's where we are <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, I mean we really have to underscore that complex times includes multiple layers in particular that PR pros and agencies are dealing with here in the US we have the new COVID-19 reality with another huge surge we have the issues of racial unrest and conflict here domestically and on top of that political rancor doing during this crazy US presidential election year what just seemed to have popped up that oh there's an election a couple months ago So on that note, Rod, (laughs) you're quite brave to be joining us today. We're glad that you have so many prolific opinions, as I've heard. So welcome to Misinterpreted.
1: Absolutely delighted to be here and frankly quite exhausted having my career read back to me in that way. So (laughs) Exhausted not just because of Friday, but because I didn't realize I've actually done so much. So thanks for reminding me of the... The length of time I've
0: been doing this. (laughs) Yeah, it's like this is your life. I don't know if they had that show over in the UK, but that was a very famous show in the US for a lot of years, so that you kind of get the full gamut
2: of everything you've done. Well, at least you are five hours ahead of us, so you're about to kick off the weekend. But we want to ask you we're asking all of our guests these days, how are you doing on a personal level there in London? You know, what's the world like there now? Has it changed at all? Have regulations loosened up? You're one of those world cities that felt the Run of COVID-19 earlier this year, weeks before it hit us. So what's it like now?
1: Well, it's been I mean, an, an interesting journey, and it would be an absolute lie to suggest that it's been effortless and pain-free for anybody, including myself. I mean, you know, I turned 52 weeks before the lockdown, so, you know, a milestone, which luckily I was able to celebrate with family and friends, then had my 20th wedding anniversary the week after lockdown, so that was quite interesting. London's obviously been you know at the forefront of being hit, and it's been kind of difficult because you know we've all been locked down since the twenty third of March. We've been very, very careful and determined to obey all of that. So yeah it's been a strange time I mean we're lucky enough to have for, for south London a big garden which has been our sort of salvation and sanctuary, my daughter turned 18 last year, was meant to be doing her A-levels, you know, the end of high school exams, discovered 24 hours notice, she'd never go back to high school, wouldn't do her exams, wouldn't have any of the end of school rites of passage. So yes, not being without its moments, I think above all else for me and the family it's reminded us to think about the difference between our needs and our wants. And I think that's been a very salutary experience about realising, frankly, what really matters and what is peripheral and ephemeral. So, yeah, I I could go on for ages, but the answer is I'm fine and well, we're all fine and well, and adjusting to the evolution of something that I think will be here for a very long time. There's no pre-COVID and post-COVID, there's just the new world, I think.
0: Right, right. And well, I'm so thankful that everything is going well there in your world. And I'd like to kick off as well by saying thank you for your leadership role with the PRCA COVID-19 Task Force. I've really enjoyed getting to know you, and I just appreciate your style so much. I mean, just in seeing how you've managed that leadership role and managed just brokering a lot of forward-looking ideas about ways that our industry can lead from the front, it's been really educational to me. And I've just enjoyed that process of collaboration with you and all those colleagues that we have as part of that group. So my first question for you, Rod, is this, I mean, how should public relations professionals, in your view, adopt a more upfront, visible, assertive, and respected leadership posture within the context of everything that we're dealing with because I think clearly we have to be helping C-suite and board level executive teams manage through all that is the year 2020. And to your point that, you know, this is going to be going on well beyond this calendar year time horizon. And I'll digress just a little bit for starters. Public relations, at least here in the US, has had a real documented leadership void. I mean, that void has been quantified in measurable terms over some years now by our friends at the Planck Center. For leadership in Public Relations, which is here domestically in the U.S. So from your vantage point, when we talk about leadership, you know, should PR as a discipline up its leadership game? And if so, then how do we undertake that process, particularly for so many clients and organizations that are in crisis?
1: Gosh, so there are about 10 questions implicit in what you've said. So <laughs> yes, I'll, yeah. I'll and, She's famous and- for
0: run-on questions. <laughs> yes, it's it's one of my gifts. <laughs>
1: Let me write the book and then I'll come back to you with the answers. But I think that I mean, it's interesting. This is a debate that has been running as long as I've been in the industry and will probably all shuffle off this mortal coil with it still running. And the, and the base question, if I can sort of, in true consultancy style, reformulate it back to you, is this question of how do PR and comms take their rightful seat at the top table. And as I say, this is as old as the Hill's. So I won't claim to have all the answers, but I'll give you a few thoughts that occurred to me. I mean, the first and the most obvious and truistic is by showing a genuine understanding of business. It's always amazed me that people go, we don't have a seat at the top table. And yet they very often don't have the understanding of business fundamentals, of how finances work, of how operations relate to communications in a way that earns that right. I think language as well, ironically, given that we're all about communication and language, I think we tend to be quite myopic in our language. We talk in our terms and our language and very often not in the language of business. So that's the first one is turning up in the way that the business wants you to turn up, not in your own terms. I think secondly, and again, it's a lifelong endeavor for all of us, There's what I call contextual understanding, is that you know businesses do not operate in a vacuum. They never have, and more than ever, the sort of community and societal and social context of businesses are fundamental. And our role as communicators is how do we act as a barometer for what is going on? How do we act as the conscience of the organization? How do we help to scan the horizon for what is coming down? Right. So that's number two. I think internal to external, you know, there is no barrier between internal and external. And I think we're one of the few functions that bridges that previous divide. Proving measurable value, I mean, if I go to yet another PR conference where someone says, how does PR finally crack the measurement conundrum? I don't know what I'll do. We seem (laughs) incapable of actually cutting that Gordian knot that we've been debating ever since I joined the industry. And then the very last one is probably the most fundamental, and it's what Harold Burson's been talking about or had been talking about since the 70s, is that reputation is actually a very simple equation. It's what you say and what you do. It's how you avoid the say-do gap. So I think being willing and having the courage and the insights to be able to advise not only on an organization's communication, but also on its underlying behavior. Because I think as long as we're willing to sit downstream and have the business handed to us to PR as a verb, I think we'll continue to play second string when we should be in the front row of the orchestra.
2: That's a very good point, Rod. And I totally agree with you on the business fundamentals and business backgrounds because that is so important. And I think we need more people in PR with other degrees. Cross-disciplinary. Cross-disciplinary. Yes. Uh, We have, you know, one of our top employees has an MBA in finance Undergrad in communications and PR. And that has been a priceless asset to our organization. And, you know, we're running up against things now with COVID and with racial injustice and social justice. Like I was just on the phone with a client from Atlanta yesterday about whether or not they should participate in this boycott of social media advertising. Yeah. Facebook. And yes. Yeah. Facebook. And so, <laughs> yep. and Coca-Cola is, and you know, Coca-Cola is one of the world's largest companies and they're based in Atlanta. Their business is in healthcare. So it's like, do we do this or do we not? And so for me as an advisor, I have to go back to my fundamental understanding of business and say, well, help them weigh the risks. Like, right if you do this and we come forward with it and make a big deal out of it, are you going to lose business? And are you willing to accept that? Or are you going to gain business? And we have to look at that and you know follow our social conscious, but we also have to be mindful of the bottom line and just the pure business aspect of all this. Yeah,
0: and to me, what is most complex about that is that what is the reality today? You have to get out your crystal ball because the criteria by which you will be judged today may be turned on its head two years from now or three years from now or 10 years from now and lots of chickens may come home to roost in between now and when you think a wise decision is being made
2: and later on right well rod tell us a little bit more about prca's COVID 19 task force that you're helping with what have you all been doing to help the pr industry with communications resources and thought leadership
1: Absolutely. But can I firstly just rewind very quickly to what you were just saying? Because listening to you talk, there's another fundamental that you, you alighted on there, which is the idea of cross-discipline collaboration. Yep. Because I think one of the marks of great leaders in communications are those who know what they know, know what they don't know, and know how to assemble that cross-discipline expertise. So an example is one of the things I've been involved in during COVID is a group of us launched a thing called the Decision Circle where we've combined myself as a corporate issues and reputation person, we have a digital and social marketing person, a brand marketing lady, a guy who specializes in business resilience and business continuity, a business psychologist and an employment lawyer. And we've set ourselves up to help small and mid-sized companies, charities, and public bodies to make high-quality decisions at speed. Now, the cornerstone of this is that we've gone cross-discipline, not merely within marketing communications, but beyond. And I think this will be one of the hallmarks of PR and comms ability to evolve, is realizing that collaboration is the order of the day. Many clients don't want you to either try and claim to be brilliant at everything or merely to stick to your swim lane. So I think if I add to my list, one is a truly open and collaborative mindset.
2: Right. And it's nice when we have clients that have that mindset, right? but not all do. And no, no they, they don't. Not <laughs> all want to even... I remember early on when we thought, okay, well, it's only a matter of time before COVID gets to the U.S., so we were calling all of our clients and just talking to them about it and about preparedness. And some of them just did flat out just didn't want to even yeah, admit. Th- th- yeah, they denied that it was going it to be big deal. It was a, not going to be a big deal. <laughs> but I, you know, when people ask me what I do, it's hard to explain what we do. But to put it in simple terms, I tell them, actually, I really solve business problems all day long. That's right. really what yeah. we do.
0: Yeah, we're a business consultancy that happens to specialize in communications, relationships and reputation for business results. So being able to articulate that mission is so important and something that we don't lend voice to probably writ large across the industry.
1: That's interesting because, you know, you you mentioned earlier on my focus on human preparedness and organizational resilience. Because, again, when I set up, I thought, well, I can say I'm an issues and crisis guy or I'm a corporate reputation (laughs) guy. But I stood back and said, what does that translate into in business terms? And I realized that, you know, organizations don't really exist. They're simply an amalgam of human beings. And that if you want the organization to be resilient, which we all do, then you have to start with the human factor and human preparedness. So, so much of what I do continues to be around training and coaching and simulation and preparedness and auditing. But the end goal is that notion of helping human beings to be prepared and confident so that their organization is more resilient. So, it's that combination of system, process, and infrastructure but also human confidence and human preparedness. So again, it's, it's interesting, this thing of what is the end point, the end product of what you do, as opposed to the output.
2: So Rod, let me jump in here and ask you to elaborate on auditing. I think that's a term that sometimes our clients don't understand. They associate it with numbers instead of a communication audit or a crisis preparedness audit. So Could you elaborate a little bit more on your work in that area and the processes that you go through?
1: Sure, and I think there are, I mean, simplifying it down, there are broadly two areas. It's interesting, you know, when I think back to my early career when you offered a communications audit where you would literally pick up the phone to a bunch of journalists and regulators and stakeholders and essentially say, what do you think of this organization? And that, frankly, is still part of it to some degree, Because if we're in the business of reputation, you know, what do we want people to understand, think, feel and do, then we need to know what they understand, think, feel and do in the first place. But I think that the process of communications auditing has obviously been utterly transformed by the whole plethora of listening and analytics tools which allows you to overlay the human element with the research element that tells you who your constituencies are which matter most and what their sentiments and their hopes and fears and aspirations are so i think auditing has changed radically from a crisis perspective i mean i tend to use quite a lot of management consultancy tools i mean I was trying to work out the other day, if the Boston Matrix hadn't been invented, what would we all do? But um, what I tend to do is use a nine-box model for crisis preparedness, where one axis is about the impact of different risks, and the other is the likelihood. And you simply go through, look at all of what I call the macro risks, the broad areas of reputational vulnerability, and you prioritize them with a nine box, and then you take those in the top right-hand corner and drill down into the micro issues within those, which then allows you to build your scenario plans, to do your training, and to do your crisis simulation. So as I say, quite a lot of management consultancy techniques, which I think we need to do if we're going to hold our own as the Deloitte's and the Accenture's and the PwC's frankly move firmly into our space.
0: I would agree with that. And I think that that's the kind of discipline and really bringing a fine-tuned methodology that taps into the C-suite or the boardroom's mindset about being able to visualize what the process is, having faith in that process and understanding how those deliverables are then going to translate into being able to craft real strategy going forward, not only in policy, but also in messaging.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And I think what's always interesting is that, you know, we rightly obsess with methodologies and long may it continue. But I think my other experience doing some fairly acute crisis work, like being a part of a team of three that advised the board of Malaysia Airlines in 2014 when MH370 went missing, At 3 o'clock in the morning, when the board is trying to make turnkey decisions, all the methodology in the world isn't going to help you. There's no playbook for that situation. And that's where learned experience and the instinct born of learned experience is critical. Although I'm a huge fan of process and protocol and method, I don't think we can underestimate the value of human insight, human experience, and dare I say, humanity. Because I think the best crisis communication has humanity at its core, not just empathy, but the willingness to match empathy with action.
0: Well, and that's sort of the je ne sais quoi of leadership, right? And part of it is a commitment and a sense of vision that you can't necessarily put your finger on. And people are, as professionals, they're either going to decide they're going to be of that mindset or they're not, or they have the makeup to be of that mindset or they don't. So when we go back to that fundamental question as Kelly kicked off earlier about leadership in general, you know, there's a lot of that to it, but I digress. I know that we did want (laughs) to ask you too about the COVID-19 task force. That's where, you know, you and I have had a chance to work together. And when we talk about resources that are going out to the PR industry and with thought leadership, uh, really to help our, professional community across the globe be able to have the best tools and resources at their own disposal. Would love to get your insights about how that's going.
1: Very happily. and I realize you asked me that question about 10 minutes ago and then I (laughs) went off on a, (laughs) a a complete side street. So apologies for that. The task force, and I think we should attribute properly here, I believe that simultaneously Tony Langham, who became chair of the task force, he's CEO of Lanson's, and Mary Beth, you, I believe, got in touch with Francis Ingham and said, shouldn't we be doing something? So kudos to you, as you say, on your side of the pond. You know, the task force was basically set up in early March to provide only practical support to PR professionals during the outbreak. I mean, if you look at our purpose, it's to, and I'll, you know, I'll quote, to provide senior practitioner support to peers in organizations and consultancies across the world. Through targeted personal advice, and our starting point was setting up through a, an army of I think a hundred plus volunteers a one to one free advisory service where whether you were in house or in consultancy, you could be given or pick an advisor and have a free half hour's consultancy. I've done a couple of them, helping people out, and it's you know it, it's just fantastic. So I think that was very well used. We've been doing. I think a fascinating series of webinars, if you call it the Task Force Forums, which have sort of oscillated between very, very practical sessions for those running agencies and comms teams from financial management, mental health, team motivation for remote teams, all the way through to what I call macro issues. So we had a session with Deloitte looking at possible future scenarios. We had a session yesterday where I was in conversation with a a leading economist about where things might be going. We did a fantastic session on purpose with a group of specialists from around the world. And I think that's been fantastic as well. And then finally, there's a project that I happen to be centrally involved in called the COVID Communications Observatory, where we're starting to look at pulling together a central repository of examples of what we're calling communications excellence during and beyond COVID in a way that will help practitioners around the world to enhance their practice. And this is being managed centrally, but delivered at a very local level, because I think, and I say this as a Brit, a lot of the examples we have in comms are defined by the English language and therefore are weighted towards the US, North America, the UK and the former British Commonwealth. And I think we're probably missing out on a whole world of insights. So we're looking at allowing people to do this in their own language or English. I think we need to get more global and more local in the way that we think about learning as an industry. So those are some of the things that we're doing. The last thing I'd say is that all of the task force's work, we managed to fairly quickly persuade all of the other international bodies from EACD, AMEC and ECO to IPRA to get involved. So it's truly collaborative and it's truly global because I think we have a tendency to be sort of internally competitive with our industry. And I, for one, was fairly determined that if we're all in this together, then we have to get out of it together. So I'm I'm quite kind of collaboratively wired, and that helped with our exercise of reaching out and involving most of the industry.
0: Well, and that was, incidentally, one of the notations I was making as you were talking in terms of my reaction to what you're saying on the, just the leadership that's really being shown by the PRCA, and that's truly indicative of everything that you just enumerated about all of these different resources. I think that a lot of communications associations out there they've sort of boiled down their COVID-19 response to a smattering of webinars and that's a really tactical response whereas I feel like with the PRCA and this is just true credit to yours and to Rachel's and to Tony's leadership in particular it's really been a core strategic approach that has been multifaceted and this idea of collaboration and sharing with other associations and like this conference call that we had several weeks ago with IABC for example which has so many chapters in the U.S. and we we talked to some of the U.S. leadership and global leadership out of Texas a couple of weeks ago and I think that there's interest there and they're collaborating with us on this so it's just a sense of all ships rise if we can work together effectively in service to our membership and I've just appreciated that so much And one thing I would like to, as we look toward other issues that are going on, as Kelly had enumerated in the opening comments, you know, here in the U.S., we're at the epicenter of a whole other issue as well. And that's racial unrest. I mean, the situation, as you know, I mean, it's called upon all of us in PR in particular to show our empathy gene, I think, for being able to relate to others with whom we may or may not have shared life and professional experiences. So Kelly and I are going to discuss these challenges in a whole separate podcast, but I wanted to go ahead and tell you Kelly's firm has really tried to serve as a convener of conversations about race. It's been a really tough process. And Kelly, I don't know if you want to kind of speak to that at all in terms of just some of the challenges that went, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but just some of the things that you've seen.
2: Well, just a couple things. So, first of all, we live in a very conservative part of the country. Right. And I felt like, well, I've always been an advocate for minorities, people of color, LGBT. And so, when all of this happened, I felt like we as an agency needed to do what right. we were advising our clients to do, right? which is to put together an actionable plan for taking a hard look at your own organization And thinking about where you could contribute to the end of this racial issue. And so we did that. And also I was asked to write a column for the Business Journal. And when I submitted my idea, they said, well, this is really controversial. So go ahead and write it. And if we (laughs) like it, we'll take it. And I think my title was Actions Over Words. What business leaders can do to begin to impact systemic change, or something, and like somehow that. that's controversial. Well, actually, they ended <laughs> up liking it.
1: <laughs> I didn't want to say that. That doesn't seem like a particularly heretical standpoint, but right. Um, well, each to their own.
2: Yes, I do think because we do live in a conservative part of the country. But anyway, so collectively, yes. our team got together and we put together our action plan. And we had, you know, very clear steps for what we're going to do. And none of them were really far out there at all. It was like we're going to volunteer on June 19th our services to an organization that serves people of color, whether that's if we go and volunteer or maybe we take on a marketing project that they need help on. We're going to increase the number of minorities of color interns that we hire. We're going to actively seek out diverse candidates the next time we have an opening. We're a small agency, but I can count on one hand the number of people of color who have applied for a job in my agency over the past 12 years because of where we live. Right. And so, and it was setting up a scholarship fund. And so we got a little bit of pushback because... Well, we sent out an email to clients, former clients, colleagues, friends, PR people. The response was collectively really well received by people from our industry and in communications. But from some of our clients and former clients, just a few, but they just flipped out and emailed back and started talking about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, please don't donate to Black Lives Matter or Antifa. And I'm like, Wow, like, did we completely fail here at what we were, yeah. what we sent out? Because <laughs> that is not what we were talking about at all. And so I had to make the hard choice as an agency leader in our market. And I want to be in the country to just say, okay, we are going to do something. We are going to take some small steps. And you, as a business owner, can take small steps too. But it's just such a hot racially motivated issue and everybody just gets all up in arms and they don't read through. Like one person said, you lost me at the first paragraph. Well, maybe if you would have really read through the whole thing, then you would have gotten it. But so that's kind of what we're dealing with here. When Mary Beth said, you know, we decided to take a stand and come forward with a plan and it's been kind of tough. And when we go back to talking about, remember, the business part of running a business, how do you weigh doing what's right and taking a stand for my business versus weighing it against the possibility of losing business? Because right. somebody doesn't fundamentally agree with me on taking baby steps towards more diversity in our organization.
0: Right. And Rod, I wanted you to hear that directly from Kelly so you could kind of mm-hmm. get a sense for the struggle, just as one example of a you know smaller agency that's based in the U.S., southeast and you know just to pose the question to you is all of us in public relations as we advise our clients what should our industry's posture be because a lot of PR firms are asking you know how do we lead our clients on matters of racial inclusion how do we lead if we ourselves are white how should we engage do we engage how do we make sure that you know we're not advising our clients with counsel that say, you know, we ourselves are failing to implement. So in my customary way of couching 18,000 questions into one question, you know, these are really difficult issues. And I just wanted to get your take as being, you know, a, a leader from another country who is sort of outside looking in from one perspective of seeing what's happening over here from your vantage point, but knowing too that you know, the UK also has its own issues.
2: And has jumped into the protesting. Right, right. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, you're right. You've you asked me you know, 24 questions, which could keep us here all night, but I don't <laughs> think we have all night. So I'm trying to keep it brief. I mean, I think you've highlighted a really important thing is that no two organizations are the same. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating about global and local politics over recent years is that there are no sort of moral absolutes as much as we would like them to be. Things that outrage me to somebody else are perfectly normal. So I think for an industry, it's about working out where the consensus is, but also leading. And I don't think that on Black Lives Matters, there's any position to take other than being absolutely dogged in leadership around diversity and inclusion in every sense. I think for individual agencies or individual businesses, it's somewhat more contextual. As you say, it depends on the sort of business that you are. You know, I think the starting point with diversity and inclusion in the broad sense is listening, listening, and listening some more partly to your customers but first and foremost to your own people because as we all know if you don't have a motivated team you don't have a business and i think that a lot of this has to start on the inside and i think some of the most visionary organizations are not leaping in with their preconceived ideas of what progress looks like is they're stopping they're being vulnerable they're being open to their own fallibilities they're listening to their staff They're thinking about diversity in every sense, that yes, it's about race and ethnicity, but also about gender, about religious belief. There's a whole unspoken thing in the debates going on at the moment about social class as a form of diversity, and then also cognitive diversity. So I think that although there are individual debates happening around those different facets of diversity, the most enlightened organizations are thinking about their d n i footprint in the round as opposed to being driven exclusively by what's happening at the moment. I think it's about once you've done all that, making measurable commitments and commitments that you're actually able to deliver i mean I think within our industry, one of the organizations that impressed me most has been provoked media, what used to be. Holmes report. I think their coverage has been outstanding, but I think the way in which they, within a matter of days, had spelled out, if you like, a measurable manifesto for what they were going to do and over what timescale and with what outcomes, deeply impressive. So I think that's another great example of committing to measurable change that you can actually deliver and are determined to deliver. And that doesn't involve jumping on any passing bandwagons. This has to be rapid but thoughtful. So, yeah, no easy task. But I always think that if you know what your guiding principles are on any given topic, you're more likely to get to a good outcome than simply launching into your strategy and plan.
2: Absolutely. And luckily, I own the business, so I get to decide. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody
2: does, but our steps were measurable and very achievable. And we did run our plan by several leaders in the community, leaders of color, who gave great input into some of the language and asked some really hard questions, which in turn led us to go back and rethink how we were saying some things and A lot of thought went into it. Right. And you can't
0: be afraid to be challenged. I think that's the core mandate for leadership is to invite those diverse voices to the table and be ready to be made to feel uncomfortable a little bit or even a lot.
1: There was a fantastic post on LinkedIn this morning from someone of color who had said that she really didn't like it when people said, I don't see color. Because her point was... The color of my skin doesn't define me, but it is part of who I am. And she was essentially saying, don't let's pretend that diversity involves ignoring difference. It's about acknowledging difference and working out how you achieve equality within that difference. I found it absolutely inspiring idea of don't say you don't see color because you're lying. It's what you do having seen color that's important
2: it was quite something. Rod as we wrap up here I just want to ask you how the U.S. is being perceived overseas so my son studied in London a couple years ago for nine months and he would you know tell me about the perceptions and how some of his British friends were making fun of us really quite frankly for our president But I'm interested to know what's going on over there now. I mean, this is not a political podcast. Please know that this is not a political podcast. My views are a little more left-leaning than Mary Beth's views, which is why we make a great team and why we get on the phone and sometimes talk for two hours and then get off the phone. And we're like, well, okay, we agree to disagree on some things. (laughs) And I think that's a healthy relationship, and it's what makes us good co-consultants. So we're here in our little bubble. So what do people think of us over there in the U.K.?
1: Well, it's always a great question, what do people think? Because, you know, the views on the U.S. are as diverse as I'm sure the views of the U.K. are within the U.S. I mean, you know, I will carry all the burden of my own personal political biases, you know, my upbringing, the fact that I'm university educated. My personal view, and I'll come on to your question, is I, like you, lean somewhat left. I worked for the Labour Party in 1997 when there was a Labour Party, Purely personally, I have been profoundly and deeply concerned by more or less everything I've seen from your presence. And I know this will divide your listeners, and I'll make as many enemies as I have friends. But, you know, I I think there's deep concern about the leadership style, about the divisiveness, about the polarization. I won't go on. You probably get my personal view. And, you know, I think in a way the UK has somewhat lost any right to do any laughing at anybody with our own government. And again, my own (laughs) politics come in here. But, you know, I I don't think if you look at the raw statistics around COVID, I mean, I think our government's response, they came out of the gate. They locked down too late and they're coming out too early. I just think that the leadership has been amoral at best. So I think we've lost any bragging rights. I think our decision over Brexit, again, purely a personal view, meant we forwent you know, any ability to really judge other nations. But that's just my view. There are many who think that what Donald Trump represents in terms of nationalism, isolationism, patriotism, protectionism, are a good thing, and there are differing views of the world. I think, broadly speaking, even if we've foregone the right to laugh, I do unfortunately have to say I think a lot of people stare at what's going on in your politics and sort of ghoulish soap opera-like disbelief. (laughs) That's that's quotable. What he can get away with. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I sort of constantly think, oh my God, he can't stoop any lower, but I know that he will. And I think that's a general feeling. I think a lot of people have simply switched off. A lot of people despair about what it says, about U.S. leadership, which obviously for so many decades was so pivotal to the world order. I could go on, but I think my general sense is probably four out of ten at best, but for many, it's nine out of ten, and that's because we live in a deeply polarized world. And I think that's, I'll close by saying, that's a fundamental challenge for communicators, is how do you make decisions and advise amid polarization? And I think the only answer to my own question is sometimes it's about making bold and courageous choices, knowing that you can't please all the people all the time. And that, you know, to your point about your business, you may have to decide that your values are such that you make choices not to work with certain clients. If they don't like where you're going on diversity and inclusion, you may have to make the tough call to part ways. It all comes back to your values and how those translate into your actions. So oh, it was nothing to do with Donald Trump, but I saw, a, I saw a bridge and I leapt onto it.
2: Well, I absolutely agree with you, and I would be willing to do that. Mm-hmm. I have before. <laughs> right, right.
0: And it's part of the reality today more so than I think it's ever been in the past. So it's going to be an ongoing, as uh, Rod said, saga of trying to navigate some very challenging waters ahead. Certainly this year has been... It's such an interesting year as it's unfolded and it's one where I think communicators and strategists have to be in tune in the moment with exactly what is happening and yet be able to constantly apply that context to things. So Rod, this has been a great conversation. We just so appreciate you. Thank you.
2: Yes, Rod, thank you so much. You're such a accomplished nice man and we appreciate you taking time out on your Friday to spend with us.
1: Thank you for being on. And, you know, I didn't realize that being accomplished and nice, they, they seem to me things anyone should aspire to, but it seems to be <laughs> differentiating. So thank you for suggesting that. I'll continue to try and strike that balance. Being
2: accomplished and nice. That's a big compliment. Well, yeah, to we, this, we this. value those two things <laughs> high, above all else. <laughs> and to our listeners, you can connect with Rod via LinkedIn and follow his Twitter handle at Rod Cartwright. Please follow us at Twitter handle Fletcher PR, and you can follow me at Twitter handle KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West.
0: And don't miss our Twitter chats on the last Wednesday of each month using the Ms. Interpreted hashtag. And we love having direct dialogue with all of our
2: following base. So please give us a shout any old time. And that's hashtag Ms. Interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Ms. Interpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.